Hello there, I'm Dr. Hacky Reitman, and you're listening to Exploring Different Brains. Hi, I'm Dr. Hacky Reitman. Welcome to another episode of Exploring Different Brains. Today, I am thrilled to be talking with Jennifer Jo Brout, who not only has a terrific education, but she's the first one ever to tell me the entity that she herself suffers from. It's called misophonia, and I had no idea it was so common. And in addition to being a school psychologist and having a million degrees and doing so much for so many, Jennifer Jo Brout, tell us what's going on. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's really nice to be here. Well, let's start out telling people who the heck you are. Okay. Well, I am a psychologist and a counselor in Connecticut, and I have, I call it misophonia. A lot of people call it misophonia. Some people call it misophonia. So there's a lot of different pronunciations, but I go with misophonia. So I have misophonia, and my daughter also suffers from misophonia. And about 20 years ago, I started to study this condition, although under a different name because we didn't really have a name for it back then. So I have started research programs. I have one ongoing program at Duke University with Dr. Zachary Rosenthal. And I have some research uh, programs at NYU, one at NYU, and have had various other things along the way. Um, And really, the bottom line is, for 20 years, I've been trying to raise interest and raise funding for this disorder. Let's remove the suspense for our audience and tell us what is the mysterious misophonia? Well, and it is somewhat mysterious. Um, There's really not an agreed upon definition for what it is at this point, because of course it's not in any diagnostic manual. So there's not a parameter or a description of the disorder that everybody agrees on. However, having said that, it is a disorder that has been described by the people who termed it, which are the Jasterboffs, as a disorder of decreased sound tolerance. And within decreased sound tolerance, there are specific noises, some of which are repetitive, some of which are pattern-based, And these noises, when they are processed, seem to ignite a fight-flight reaction or at, you know, or at least a high-level sort of autonomic nervous system reaction that is atypical of the rest of the population. So I guess another way to say that that might be a little easier is that people with misophonia have brains that misinterpret sensory or auditory stimuli as toxic, harmful, dangerous, and the body goes into its natural defensive state. Well, here's the way I describe it after reading about it. Okay. The way I am looking at it, having just, I have nowhere near the knowledge you do, just as a lay person. The way it seems to me is, is that for certain people, there are certain routine sounds, could be breathing or chewing, whatever. And for some reason, in those individuals, the part of the brain that's the center for 
call it violence or fight or flight or all these different overlapping areas, road rage, okay? On the newer scans and studies, that part of the brain lights up in misophonia and they fly into a fight or flight or a violence or it's just not a case of, gee, it bothers me like chalk on a, you know, a blackboard. No, no, no. This is a big deal. Now, did what I just say make sense or am I off the path? No, you're not that off the path. Um, there's been some, I think, exaggeration in a lot of the press reports and some misunderstanding about the association of violence. Um, what we know physiologically, if you were to measure somebody's reaction physiologically, you would see the fight-flight response or you would see the again, what we would call the defensive motivational system. So what goes up when you're under attack. However, the emotion that people associate it with could be rage, could be anxiety, could be shutting down, um, could be crying. It doesn't necessarily have to be rage. And in fact, a lot of the time it actually is not. And, you know, there's been... A couple of books written, um, calling it sound rage or chewing rage. Um, and I, I don't think that's the best way to characterize it. Although certainly this feeling of being enraged is something that some people and a lot of people do experience, but it is not the only feeling, the only emotion that you would put to go together with this physiological response. Now, tell us about your organization. Okay. Well, I have um, a longstanding organization called Sensation and Emotion Network, which I have had for almost 15 years. And what we've done there is try to network researchers who are interested in looking at how sensory processing affects emotion regulation. So that's where this all started. Then when misophonia actually got its name um, and became known in the press, and I saw that the symptoms that lined up with misophonia were closer to what I was looking at, I moved my efforts more towards specifically misophonia. Um, and I started a network called the International Misophonia Research Network. And what I've tried to do there is get a number of researchers who are either already interested in misophonia or who I can lure into being interested in misophonia together and actually network, which is, you know, clearly very, very important and doesn't come easily. Um, and so right now we just, a number of us just finished a lit review um, on the small but emerging body of misophonia research. And we are working on potential conferences um, online. We did a webinar that was free from Duke where we just went over the very basic tenets of misophonia. Um, we're planning a few more of those. And in addition, I'm trying to encourage people who suffer from this to help fundraise. Uh, because as you probably know, there, you know, when you're dealing with a quote, new disorder, 
or an unknown disorder, the funding from the government does not come flooding in, to say the least. Well, why don't you tell our audience how they can get a hold of you, our expanding and growing Different Brains audience, who are a lot of wonderful people, many of whom have their own kinds of different brains like we all have. Yes. And tell them how they would get in touch with you to get involved or to donate or find out more. Wonderful. They can email me at jbrout at gmail.com, which is just J-B-R-O-U-T at gmail.com. Or they can go online at International Misophonia Research Network and go through the website. And for people who, if there's anyone out there who wants to donate to the program at Duke, uh, it's just dukescience.org. Duke, you're at NYU. You're doing so many different things. Now, let's take our audience through some of the basics. Because what I like to do, I try to do like I tried to do with our book, Asper Tools, is just give real tools you can use. So first, let's start. Let's go back and say... I'm out there. I think I might have misophonia. What do I do? Start with that. What do I do? Where do I go? Who do I ask? Well, unfortunately, there are not a lot of people to go to um, yet. But if you can find the right people, the first thing I would say to do is to get as educated as one can about what is known about the disorder Um, and try to separate out some of the hype about it versus the reality and the evidence-based research. Let me stop you there for a minute. Let me stop you to say, on your website, do you have a list or anybody to call? Can someone call? Like, for instance, if I think my child has autism, I can call a lot of different people. I can call CARD at the University of Miami. Is there some place someone can call or email or? Yes and no. Um, they can certainly call me. They can call. Um, there are there is the Misophonia Association in uh, Oregon. Um, there is uh, Misophonia International, which is a wonderful news site that I'm affiliated with. And, you know, everyone has kind of a different view of what this disorder is. So I like to think that my site is is very sort of stringent in terms of what misophonia is, what we know, what we don't know. Okay, so let's repeat your site. Um, My site is Misophonia International and also Misophonia International Research Network. Are those dot coms or dot orgs? They're dot coms. Okay. Yeah, we don't, I don't take any, um, you know, we're not a nonprofit. So what I try to do, which I thought was a really interesting paradigm, um, is I have identified really terrific researchers for misophonia, uh, people who are very cross-disciplinary oriented, who look at things sort of from a processing perspective, not a pathology perspective, and what I try to do is direct people to donate directly to these programs so that we can support these researchers who are willing to be supportive of understanding our disorder. Understood. So now yeah. I figured out who to go to. 
and I right. have misophonia, misophonia. And what are some of the simple tools that I can use to help me off the, you know? Yes, I should mention also we have started a provider network, and you know it's very small right now, but we're obviously trying to expand it. Um, and we are including nurses, psychologists, occupational therapists, audiologists, obviously. Um, and because this is a, a condition that crosses over many different disciplines, we are trying to gather many different types of clinicians as well as researchers. So we have started that provider network, which is misophoniaproviders.com. Unfortunately, it takes time because we have to start to train everybody in, you know, just the basic understanding of what the disorder is. But I think, you know, the first thing that a person should do is, you know, for, you know, in terms of coping, one is realize that we don't have a real treatment yet. So if you're looking for a treatment to, or a cure, we don't have that yet. And a lot of people, unfortunately, get sort of lured into, and I know this happens certainly with a lot of disorders, but lured into these, you know, 90% rate cure treatments are cured. And there, there aren't any, there just, there aren't. However, nobody should be losing hope because there are coping mechanisms that we're developing a program, for example, at Duke that can be very effective. And the coping mechanisms are, they, and depending of course on what age, there are adults with this, there's you know children with this. So the coping mechanisms involve, you know, I guess what teachers would call metacognition. So an awareness of what you're thinking, an awareness of what your body is doing in response to these sounds and trying to separate out the physiological response from the emotion, kind of like what I was talking about before. Like if you have, if you're in fight flight, you can, you don't have to name that rage and you start to separate out these two constructs or one is a construct, one is an actual physiological reaction. And that's, you know, a, a, a skill that I try to help people build through counseling and that we're trying to train other people to do. Because then once you've removed the emotion word from it, you then can understand it physiologically. And then people tend to assign other people as their triggers much less once there's a little separation between what your body is doing and what your mind is doing. So it's kind of, it's a real separation, but it's somewhat artificially, you know, instilled, um, in order to cope. And the other thing I would say is since often there are relational issues that manifest as a result of this, um, there's a lot of family therapy and relationship work. Marriage counseling. Yes, absolutely. Marriage counseling, family therapy, uh, even, you know, helping people cope in the work situation. We're trying to you know, give accommodation letters that make sense to people, uh, in the workplace. So, um, I, you know, I've written a few letters. I have a few letters, sample ones online that people are free to use as, as samples, you know, kind of just explaining in detail, this is, you know, a neurophysiological issue. It's not 
an emotional problem. It's not a psychiatric disorder. It is a processing issue and that it's real. And, you know, and I guess the, the last thing would be working on stigma. A lot of people, of course, feel very stigmatized by having this, which I think is just terribly unfortunate. Um, I don't feel that way, obviously. Um, and that's another, of course, course of action to remove stigma. Now, what are some of the um, specific um, roadblocks that you're running into in your quest to uh, eliminate the stigma of misophonia, to make it more known, to get better funding for it? What are you running into? Uh, roadblocks. Uh, mostly roadblocks, <laughs> unfortunately. Uh, and while I'd like to be more positive, um, the roadblocks in terms, uh, my associate, Shailen Hayes, who runs the Misophonia International site, um, does an extraordinary job of getting out as much material as she can. Um, however, as you know, when you're starting from scratch with something that's just been named, well, of course there's no funding at all from the National Institute of Health. And I would imagine even if there were, this would not be top of the list. And that's understandable because, you know, the NIH has a certain amount of funding um, and, you know, you, you, they have to prioritize, you know, things that are life threatening and severely life altering. And while this can be life altering and in some cases severely life altering, you know, certainly, you know, it's just not on the radar of the National Institute of Health. And then really the best thing that we can do is private funding. And my hope was that there would be crowdsource funding going on uh, since there is a very, you know, it's interesting too, I should mention that, that in my opinion and in the opinion of other people who I, I feel are, are certainly very qualified to state this, misophonia as a disorder may stand by itself. However, the symptoms of misophonia are within many other disorders. So you see it in autism, uh, the just over-responsivity to certain sounds. You see it um, sometimes in schizophrenia. You see it in fibromyalgia. You see it with people with migraines. And the lens really that one needs to look through is really this lens of sensory processing. Well, let me that interrupt the way you there to say that Let's take autism and Asperger's, for instance. Um, I was completely ignorant of the fact that uh, my daughter, Rebecca, that, who has Asperger's, that all of her senses were hyper. Touch, smell, sound, lights, everything. Yep. And uh, once I became aware of it, it was a whole different ballgame. But now, how would one differentiate between, or is it necessary to differentiate between, someone on the spectrum who simply has hypersenses versus someone on the spectrum, since we know none of these things occur in isolation, who also has misophonia. You know, it's interesting because in my point of view, when I originally sort of came back into action when I saw misophonia was named, I thought this is just the auditory component of sensory over-responsivity. So when you're saying the sensory hyper-responsivities, I would just call them sensory over-responsivities, but we're talking about the same thing. So for me, 
you know, the description of somebody who's sensory over responsive is somebody who responds to sensory stimuli in one or more domains, um, you know, with a much escalated uh, nervous system arousal and possibly goes into fight flight. So there's a real crossover. Um, I think what the difference is here is that with misophonia, it's very specific to the auditory modality and a little bit with the visual. But one thing I can tell you, now I can't tell you if, you know, with brain imaging, if it would all pan out to be the same. The physiological response to the stimuli is the same, or at least extremely similar to people with autism, people with, I guess, what used to be called Asperger's before they took it out of the DSM. Um, don't get me started on the DSM. But so the, the physiological responsivity is the same. Um, and, you know, there are kids and adults who have this sort of full range of sensory over responsivity who, as you know, with people with Asperger's or autism go through the day with these inc just incredible nervous system, you know, ups and downs. And it's, you know, when, when you start looking through that lens of sensory processing, it really changes how you look at behavior, which I think is what you were saying, because you see these affect dysregulation and certain behaviors as a result of being overstimulated and in some cases under responsive. Um, and it just changes, it changes the way that one looks at human development and, you know, um, and it's something I think psychiatry has really kind of dropped the ball on and has not picked it back up, unfortunately. Jennifer, one more time, please tell our audience how they can get a hold of you and learn more. They can just email me at jbrout at gmail.com. So that, again, is J-B-R-O-U-T at gmail.com. Or, again, the Misophonia International website or the International Misophonia Research Network. The, the research network is more for researchers. So I would say through misophoniainternational.com. Jennifer Joe Brout, thank you so much for being here as a guest at differentbrains.com. I've learned so much today, and I'm sure our audience has, not only about misophonia, but about the sensory and emotional interplay and the depathologicalization. I think I just invented a new word like misremembering. Misremembering, yes. <laughs> depathologizing, yes. <laughs> Well, I like it either way. It works. <laughs> Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you very, very much. For more information, visit us at differentbrains.com.